Pour yourself a sweet tea, pull up a lawn chair, and turn the page with us. You're listening to Right on Mississippi, a podcast taking you inside the minds of America's most treasured wordsmiths. I'm Ebony Lamumba, and Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's Literary Lawn Party. Welcome, everyone, to the Mississippi Book Festival 2021 virtual. Um, This is the Southern Writers panel. We are so happy that you're here. Today, we have with us Lee Durkee, who is a graduate of the Mississippi Public School System and was bused to various schools throughout the Hattiesburg area. He later attended Pearl River Junior College, the University of Southern Mississippi, the University of Arkansas, and Syracuse University. He is the author of the novels Rides of the Midway and The Last Taxi Driver. His work has appeared in Harper's Magazine, The Sun, The Best of the Oxford American, Zoetrope All Story, Ten House, and Mississippi Noir. In 2022, Scribner will publish Stalking Shakespeare, a memoir about his obsession with trying to find a lost portrait of William Shakespeare. He lives in Oxford, Mississippi. We also have with us Jen Phillips. Jen is the author of six novels, ranging from historical fiction to literary thriller to middle grade. Her work has been sold in 29 countries. Jen's debut novel, The Well and the Mine, won the 2009 Barnes and Noble Discover Award. Her recent novel, Fierce Kingdom, was named one of the best crime novels of 2017 by the New York Times Book Review. It was also named one of the best books of 2017 by Publishers Weekly, NPR, Amazon, and Kirkus Reviews. A Kirkus starred review called it poignant and profound, adding that this adrenaline-fueled thriller will shatter readers like bullet through bone. Born in Montgomery, Alabama, Jane graduated from Birmingham Southern College with a degree in political journalism. After time spent in Ireland, New York, and Washington, D.C., she currently lives with her family, plus a schnoodle and a mini golden mountain doodle. That was tough for me to read. Um, in Birmingham. Uh, her new novel is called Family Law, and it is lovely. Um, oh, I forgot to say who I am. I'm Jimmy Cajolis, by the way. I, I wrote some other stuff, too. So <laughs> happy to be here. Um, cool. So this is the Southern Writers Panel. Um, I wanted to just go ahead and dive right into uh, to you guys' books, if that's cool. Um, first off, would you want to start, each of you start, by just giving a brief like description of your newest book? Um, I'll go first. Please do. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so you mentioned I'll hold up my copy as well. Um, so, yeah, I, my last book was about before this one was about motherhood. And in some ways, this is another take on motherhood, only instead of the mothers that we're born to, it looks at the women outside of our families who shape us. I think uh, maybe some people grow up to be exactly who their parents thought they would be. I don't know if I know those people. I think for most of us, there is a gap between the way we were raised and who we turned out to be. And i I find that gap interesting of how you decide which self you want to be. So this book follows, it will, it's set in 1970s and 80s Montgomery, and it follows Lucia Gilbert, a young lawyer at a time when a woman in the courtroom is still rare. It follows her and, and her friendship with a teenage girl, Rachel, who's raised very conservatively and who suddenly sees this entirely different way of life with Lucia. And it follows both of them after uh, threats to Lucia's 
law practice turn into something more dangerous than just threats. And, and we see how that affects both their lives. That's all. <laughs> Should I just jump in now? By the way, I'm impressed you've been translated into 29 languages, my God, or 29 <laughs> countries. Uh, that's impressive. I mean, I don't understand what Pretty they say awesome. once they translate them, but it <laughs> well, does yeah. sound cool. <laughs> it also takes the pressure off, I assume, because it's really, you know, you're sort of a bit removed from your own book. Yes. Um, but congratulations on that. I think that's incredible. Um, my book is uh, The Last Taxi Driver. Uh, out with Tin House Press last year, and um, it's written point, you know, from the point of view, which I think is pretty rare, the gig economy. Um, not many writers coming out of that, so um, I at least gave that voice. It takes place in a day and a half of a kind of shift from hell of a taxi driver in uh, North Mississippi in a cleverly disguised town, nothing like Oxford, Mississippi, uh, <laughs> named Lou Bischoff, and it kind of charts his deterioration during a day when everything goes wrong and everything gets increasingly danger as dark starts to fall. It's a, it's a novel about driving day shift taxi, which is a very different world than driving taxi at night shift. Uh, during the day, you have regular customers and you're getting people to work, which puts a lot of pressure on you. So you'll get backed up four or five rides and you know these people can get fired if you don't get them to work on time. And your customers are people like you in the service industry. And they're trying to get McDonald's and Burger King at 7 in the morning. And they're paying $10 for the ride there, $10 for the ride home. And they're getting paid $9 an hour. So I tried to bring that world to life because it fascinated me in that I lived in Oxford for almost a decade, not knowing it was surrounded by projects and trailer parks filled with the people working in the restaurants that I went to. Um, so um, th that said, that is essentially the gist of the novel. Um, and it is one of those novels that takes place, you know, almost in a 24-hour time period, which is a kind of a novel I've always wanted to write. Excellent, excellent. Um, one way that I found that both of y'all's novels are sort of in conversation with each other, um, and actually there's lots of ways, um, but one of the more interesting ones is that your characters are very much uh, in and of and from and shaped by the South, but they also push very hard back against the South in really interesting ways from like the reluctance around guns to racial matters to um, just a, a sort of ill, not feeling quite at home in that culture. And I wanted to know if either of you would like to speak on that. You're welcome to go ahead, Lee. I went first last time. Okay, you went first last time? <laughs> well, I've been away from the South for so long. I lived in Vermont for 18 years and raised a kid there. And I lived in other places, too. And I really thought I'd never come back to Mississippi, but I did. And I found myself, to my complete surprise, falling in love with Oxford, and I just never left. That said, I'm a gaijin, as they say in Japan. Somebody that's been away for too long, and now that they're back, is not to be trusted. Um, and I recognize that and how I'm treated here and there. And I'm not complaining about that, but I don't really feel like, you know, I'm, I represent the South in any way. I've been away for so long. I'm relearning the South. So in a sense, I'm an imposter at this uh, panel. <laughs> it's a good place to write from, though, I think, to have that distance, to be both of it and apart from it. it it's kind of a perfect amount of objectivity, it seems like. 
it has its advantages, I think. But it can also get you in trouble and you can end up hurting <laughs> yeah. people's feelings, et cetera, which I'm sure you know. Yeah, I I mean, and, and I, some of that certainly resonates with me. Um, I do live in Birmingham. I also was away for a while in Ireland and New York and D.C. I also thought I would surely never come back to the South. My first novel uh, is also very much a Southern novel. It's set in 1931 in small town in a coal mining town in Alabama. And I think it sort of surprised me when a lot of the commentary when it came out really framed it in terms of not just a Southern book, but me as a Southern writer. And I was really uncomfortable with that term uh, and because it felt limiting. So this yeah. is the first book that I've written. Again, that was my first, this is my sixth, that that feels like a wholly Southern book. That, and I think it took me that long to get comfortable with the notion that I could write about the South and not feel like I was um, restricted to only writing about it. And maybe it took that long before I figured out what I really wanted to say about the South I grew up in, a South that is more familiar to me than, say, 1931. That, too, has a certain amount of distance. Um, you know, I, I grew up, I think, feeling like I never really read about the South that I knew, that most of what I read about was very binary. I mean, it was very sort of, it was all rural or small town. It um, Both Black people and white people tended to act in certain ways. Uh, there didn't seem to be much acknowledgement that there wasn't just Black and white. There were all sorts of ethnic and racial groups, that there were plenty of Jewish people or Hindu or Muslim or um, that there was gay and straight, that there were liberals, actual liberals, some too, as well as conservatives. And so I did want to, in some ways, just capture a South that is a little more complicated. It's not as if those broader categories that people think of, I mean, they're here, but there are also so many other variations that, that I, I did really want to try to capture something at least close to the South that I knew. And there again, with a little bit of a distance, it's a South I, I grew up in, not exactly the one I see now, but there's certainly some overlap. I had a very similar experience that the South I grew up in, in Hattiesburg, in the South Mississippi, um, doesn't have much in common with Oxford, Mississippi. And so Oxford is a learning experience for me constantly. Um, it, it, I wish it were diverse here in the way you just described. And of course, the university is getting much better that way. Um, but, you know, I live in a very gentrified town, um, very white town now, you know, especially considering Mississippi, which is not how I grew up in Hattiesburg. Mm -hmm. um, and I have to reconcile myself with that because I was raised, you know, sad to say, I was raised to despise Oxford, Mississippi and Ole Miss you know, from a very young age, I grew up screaming, go to hell, little miss, go to hell, you know, at pep rallies. It was the first time I was allowed to curse. <laughs> um, I went to public schools where I was a minority, you know, and which was, you know, it was part of the great experiment of integration, which we were led to believe was vitally important and which I still believe is, but seems to be a completely forgotten subject in the South and maybe throughout America, um, which is a tragedy. And um, from that strange, very Mississippi beginning, I now live in a town that um, 
it is a great town filled with writers, filled with fascinating people, but lacks the diversity you, you've mentioned. And I wish there was some way to import that diversity here. Um, when I lived in Vermont, they were very aware of how gentrified they were, and they went out of their way to bring people from outside their culture into their state. The politicians did that. You cannot imagine that taking place in, in Mississippi up today. Um, so, um, you know, I think, like you said, I have a love-hate relationship with the South, with my home state of Mississippi, and probably with myself. So um, it, it's uh, it's a, such a big subject to get our heads around. And I hope I'm not floundering too much in speaking about the South. And I hope I'm not hurting anybody's feelings. I'm not down in the South. There are things I love about the South. I'm here. <laughs> No, it's messy. And I think, you know, I mean, I also think a, a good novel should have a, should have a certain messiness to it. That if all the answers are tidy, you're doing something wrong. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Well, that's something. So can we talk about ghosts now, G? <laughs> now, that's, I will say that's something both of your novels do really, really well. And really interestingly, um, both being a lawyer that, Lucia being a, a lawyer that works, you know, with couples in divorce, and people at their lowest, and also a cab driver who is shoveling people to work or back from rehab. Um, a lot of what is in these books focuses on people who are vulnerable and in some sort of distress. And there's a lot of like work with class in that, and um, a lot of work with just uh, any situation and in, in which things get messy. Um, what sort of drove you guys to write about people in those situations? Your turn to go first. <laughs> I like this. We've got a real clear, a real clear pattern. Um, you know, I mean, I think in some ways, I, I'm not sure how many places you can write about without touching on, say, class and race. It's certainly, I don't think you can talk about Alabama without touching on it. So um, I had known I wanted to write a book about about the ways women shape each other uh, intergenerationally about again the, the, I, particularly because I, I was raised like Rachel in the book very conservatively with very clear lines that you should not cross um, as a as a girl or as a boy um, black and white all sorts of lines and and you all wanted sort of to explore how you might choose different paths I had interviewed a lawyer here in Birmingham many years ago, maybe 15 years ago, who was um, a family lawyer. And I'd been told, sort of warned before I interviewed her of how terrifying she was. And, uh, and I can't remember, can I say this? I can't remember like if the word bitch or ball buster was used, um, but it was one or maybe both. And I met her and she was delightful. Uh, warm and friendly, and I stayed interested both in her stories of um, she was one of two women in her law school class. Uh, she talked a little bit about being, in a lot of cases, the first woman lawyer a lot of other lawyers and judges had had met. Uh, again, this is the 70s. It's not like we're talking about the 1920s. Uh, I found that interesting, and I found that gap between what people imagined her to be and what she actually was to be very interesting. So that sort of, those two things sort of came together, wanting to write a story about how women shape each other. 
um, and finding that that angle of law of that particular time period in the late 70s, early 80s, when all these um, all the old walls are still in place, um, all the old the old traditional culture, white and male and Christian is still pretty firm, but you are getting some cracks in it. And there is a sense of what might be. So I found that time period interesting. I found the w- angle of law and sort of what, what it could mean uh, as a woman lawyer, what you might see differently than your counterparts. You know, all that kind of came together as an interesting way to explore uh, the culture from different angles. I have no idea if that answered your question or not, well, but was it was a lot of sentences strung together. <laughs> Well, you know, I have no problem with asking incredibly vague questions. <laughs> so really, it's just an excuse to talk about whatever you want to talk about. Um, no, that was a lovely answer. Um, I think I didn't have much of a choice but to write about the service industry because it's all I've ever known my, my entire life. I was raised in restaurants. I was raised by specifically a Pasquale's Pizza, which has in Birmingham their national headquarters are used to. Um <laughs> And went on from there and was a bartender my whole life and then uh, eventually became a cab driver. So and I don't have the, the kind of imagination that a George Saunders or somebody has where I can write something separate from myself. I wish I did. It would open up a lot of doors and possibilities. I'm rather you know, insular. And in so I wrote about, you know, what was closest and what was happening to me at the time. Um And that was about a certain class of people who were downtrodden, who didn't have credit cards, who might not even have cell phones. Um, And, um, you know, it's all I had to do was look around because I was driving a cab 70 hours a week and terrified I wouldn't be able to remember all the crazy, horrible and magical things that happened to me every day. It was unlike any job I'd ever had. And I didn't get it in order to write a book about it. I got it because I couldn't teach old Miss, Miss Freshman another semester without going crazy. So I quit my job teaching comp and started driving a cab and without any ulterior motive, but as a writer, it turned out to be the luckiest thing I'd ever done because it was all this, you know, what people call material, but it was really just life being thrown at me every day. And I would get back my couch, you know, at the end of the day, and I would just be terrified I was going to forget it all. I was too tired. I didn't keep a journal. I wasn't writing at the time. And I knew I needed to remember all this. And I also knew that I had a horrible memory. And um, so I was worried. Eventually, I started driving um, night shift. And I get opened up my days to write. And I just started it all poured out. And um, uh, and I was fortunate that way. And I probably, I hate to admit this, I probably wouldn't have been able to write the, the novel without driving for Uber. <laughs> and I hate saying that. But, there, you know, being able to set your own hours as a writer is priceless. Yeah. And um, it, it's writing about people that are lower class. Obviously, they're neglected by fiction these days. Most of our teacher, most of our writers are MFA teachers these days. And they may have come from some really tough backgrounds, but they live pretty decent lives, suburban lives. And I think it's important to have writers who are coming at us from the gig economy or the service industry or any of these other, you know, caste system, you know, that we live inside and ignore. And um, I hope I continue to write from that point of view. 
So how long were you, so how long did you drive, how long did you drive taxis? In Oxford? Uh, to- total before the book. Yeah, I, I drove day shift for a year and night shift for a year. And I was driving Uber and airport runs until the pandemic hit. That was my livelihood. And then that, all that just vanished. You know, I haven't got a call for an airport run huh. in a year and a half. So I had a good clientele and a nice business build up. Um, and um, that just evaporated. And now I'm standing on the side of the road doing surveys to see who's wearing seatbelts and uh, who's driving distractedly is my new project. I have a job coming up with that in New England where I get flown there and I stand on the side of the road for six days collecting stats. So there'll probably be a, a novel about that sooner or later. <laughs> and by the way, Fierce Kingdom stole an idea I've had forever, which is a book set in a zoo. I'm so jealous you did that. Um, I don't know how somebody hadn't done it before. No, a zoo is just, is a, it was ripe for the taking, all right. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad I beat you to it. Oh, God, I'm jealous because I was raised in a town with the world's most depressing zoo. It's a good <laughs> zoo now Hattiesburg, in Hattiesburg, but Camper Park when I grew up. You know, it was so hot and they had all these animals in these tiny cages and the animals, I think, were sedated. So they were all sitting there with their tongues hanging out and kids throwing popcorn at them all day. And it was just a horrible place. And I always thought, wow, I could set a book there, but I never did. And now I never will. <laughs> Thank you. No, I feel like zoos have improved. That is very close to my memory of what the Montgomery Zoo was like back back in the 80s. Just a lot of concrete and yeah, I don't know if they're sedated, if that's just like what the summer in Alabama and Mississippi does to animals um, and, and exactly. people. Uh, you know, I had my um, opinion of zoos changed by Life of Pi. I don't, I, assume, I don't know if you've read that novel, mm-hmm. but there's this wonderful discussion of zoos in the introduction or the first chapter. And when he, when he talks about how animals aren't seeking adventure, they're seeking routine. Mm-hmm. And how a good zoo provides that routine and that safety, and how it's actually a better existence, perhaps, for animals than in the wild. Now, I know that's controversial, but it did make me rethink zoos right. in a much kinder way. And it also made me rethink what people want, because I think, you know, I think that's what we want too, in some ways, is a safe routine. And I think we simultaneously have to fight that urge. But, um, uh, I, I've never looked at zoos the same since Life of Pi. No, I feel like all, almost always when your view is complicated, that seems like a good thing. I'm still not not sure that the lion and the tiger would not prefer some different sort of routine that involved slaughter, <laughs> but it does seem like there are a lot of happy animals there. <laughs> that's, that's true. You know... <laughs> I'm glad that we, we've gone off on zoos now. This is the best. <laughs> Southern zoos, yeah. yeah okay, I'm gonna, I got to bring us back on back off topic briefly. Um, but uh, you guys, uh, one other thing, and, and this strikes me as a very specifically Southern thing, but feel free to tell me that's ridiculous. Uh, both of your books are so populated by side characters for good or for evil who 
um, just pop up and are like completely bright and brilliant characters from the get-go. And you don't necessarily trust them all the time, but they give a kind of life uh, to the book. And they're usually built around these wonderful, long kind of discursive conversations. And I wondered if you thought that in particular, the kind of getting to know your neighbors, speaking in these long things, revealing character through conversations was something more typical of a Southern writer or of a Southern way of being. I feel like I just finished, and yet it's my turn to go first. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, we like her team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Southern manners, the way we talk to each other, I think that has a lot to do with our literature. And, you know, when you drive in a cab, clearly that's your, your whole social life, right? So um, <laughs> um, conversation, if I was going to teach one class in college now, to freshmen, I think I would teach the art of conversation and how to judge who's been talking, how much time, et cetera. <laughs> and on that note, I'm going to pass this question. <laughs> um, I don't know how much of that sense, both of dialogue and side characters, is any conscious representation of the South, as opposed to maybe how you learn to tell stories when you grow up in the South. I mean, I think there's no way, not, not just that what I was reading as I was growing up, but just the life I was living. There's no way that that doesn't influence how I think about stories on the page, I think. Um, so, you know, certain, certainly with dialogue, with that notion of how, I mean, I, some of that's maybe just happenstance. I like dialogue. I like the challenge of how do you, how much do you reveal that way of of how how much more interesting it can be to have to get something across in a conversation as opposed to just directly telling someone in a narrative voice. Uh, and some of that surely is based on yeah, the ways we talk to each other here, the ways you grow up hearing stories around the dinner table, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, the people at church, uh, the neighbors when you pass them on the street. And I've always liked that notion of of both strangers interacting and uh, and acquaintances or friends who aren't that close, but the ways we establish intimacy and the ways we have maybe either false intimacy or immediate intimacy, all those ways that we talk to each other and ways that open up unexpectedly or take an angle we didn't we didn't expect that you know those sort of brief conversations and quick interactions. I think are really interesting on the page as opposed to sort of, you know, a, a, a relationship between a husband and a wife or, or a parent and a child, those sort of long range, multi-level, much more complex relationships. They're their own thing. They're super interesting too. But, uh, but there is something particularly fun, I think, about these people who've just met or who have just been, who have this sort of 10 minute window to talk and what draws them to each other, what repels each other, what can happen in that, in that 10 minutes. I think there probably is something Southern about that because we are so much more likely, I think, to start up a conversation with, with a stranger. That just makes me want to say, like, anybody who sat next to my father on an airplane, I apologize. Um, <laughs> that, uh, I think there perhaps at times can be maybe too much talking to a stranger, but it does open up some interesting possibilities on the page. Yeah, there's almost, 
at least in my experience of performance, I mean, because I've been a bartender and a cab driver, and in both cases, I've often got the feeling like when two people sat at the bar or two or three people get in the backseat of the cab, that they're performing for me on some level. They're putting on almost like a little one-act play and purposely aware. They're aware of me. You know, it's like they're aware of the bartender eavesdropping on them. They're aware of the cab driver. And so what you're getting is almost a type of performance art. You know, they're trying to be entertaining and they're trying to make you laugh or bring you into the conversation. For some reason, people like I've waited tables and people treat waiters horribly. I hope that wasn't my phone. <laughs> and, uh, and they treat bartenders really well, but they also, they want cab drivers to like them for some reason and they perform for them. I don't know if that's Southern or not, but it was my experience in the South at least. That's interesting that you're saying not just that there's performance, which obviously there is in every conversation, but having the outside observer changes the quality of that performance. Yeah, observer. The observer changes everything. Hmm. I think quantum physics physics has recently proved that we don't even exist if we're not observed <laughs> or even <laughs> trying to prove that. But the act of observation <laughs> is the quickening of life. Mm-hmm. Which, if that's true, it means yes, I'm being observed now, but I'm also being observed once this is over. Otherwise, I don't exist. Uh, but that's just quantum physics, and uh, I'm just bluffing my way through that anyway. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to argue with you. Yeah, of course not. Because who's going to argue over quantum physics um, <laughs> with any degree of certainty? But yeah, I think, I mean, I, that kind of touches on something I always find fascinating, which is people's desire to tell their story, often to a stranger, that often it seems like that's more appealing, that that almost every book I've ever researched will involve some level of sitting down with somebody to tell me a story. Maybe that's about their early years in law, maybe it's about an archaeology dig, maybe it's about their childhood, and there's still always a part of me that feels like, why would they tell me their most personal stuff? And yet, they do, that people feel this desire to be known, to, to be listened to, and sort of, I think, to, to pass on those stories, that there is something so interesting to me about that desire to tell people your, your, deepest, your deepest thoughts and desires and fears uh, that overrides, I think, whatever fears or embarrassment you might not always but that it's amazing to me how often people will just sit down and seemingly tell you everything that's in their head um even knowing even if they know this is for you know this is this is to be recorded this is to be used in some way this might go public i mean i love that it works super well for me but um but it's an interesting impulse we have there's a dark side to that as well, in that there's a tendency to confess to strangers to horrible things. And as a cab driver, at least, I was constantly in a situation where the creep in the back seat was projecting his or sometimes her bad qualities onto me instantly because I was a cab driver. If he was a pervert, he assumed I was a pervert because I was a cab driver. If he was a racist, and this happened so many times, 
you know, he just automatically assumed I was a fellow racist. So they're performing, they're telling you their stories, but they're also projecting themselves into you on some level. And, uh, or at least that was my experience. And, um, and the assumption was that, you know, I too, you know, I'd be okay with the N-word. I'd be okay with horrible things said about, you know, other people we passed in the cab. And uh, so there was a darkness to that performance art too. It wasn't all fun, but it was also, I drove a cab, you know, I was, I was driving when Trump was running for president. So all the um, darkest aspects of racism in the South were being trotted out for the first time. They were going public and people just could not wait to say horrible things to me in my cab. Um, to use the N-word, to use, you know, it, it was just went on on a daily basis. And I ended up driving on the night Trump was elected, which was, of course, devastating to many of us. And uh, especially since we expected a victory for the Democratic Party and we didn't get that. And uh, I just drove around that night with my cab full of frat boys, old Miss frat boys, chanting, build that wall all night. And it was, I was in shock. I was in despair. It was just, uh, yeah, never forget that. So, um, again, I've wandered off track so far. <laughs> Forgive me, Jimmy. That, that feels like a rough, a rough night to be driving a cab. I th- yeah, it was. It was memorable, at least. I will always remember where I was that night. And I spent the first part of that night dropping all my friends off at the uh, Democratic headquarters for the big celebration. To, oh. uh, well, you know, it's um, and, and with regards to confession, I think that's really interesting because, um, Jen, you were talking about how so much of this book is about how women shape each other. But I remember one of the things that struck me the most was the way Rachel sort of looks to Lucia to almost give her permission to be a certain way. And, and in a similar way, I, th- I think Lucia looks at Rachel and like has to let her become this almost motherly type figure to her. And they are both seeking for a kind of permission, which do you think that's a part of it? Or did I read that wrongly? Yeah, I think, uh, I do think it's related to performance and that, and that, yeah, that, that can easily go. I mean, it depends on the person and the scenario that can go very good or, or very bad, but that I think they're often for, you know, if there's someone who looks up to you, then that incentive to be the person you want them to see, I think can be very positive with the notion of that you suddenly see yourself different. You, you see what you could be, what they might like you to be. And that, that can be a lot of pressure or that can push you in ways that, that are positive. I, I think, yes, in the book for both of them, for the younger woman, and I don't think this is, uh, I don't think this is a gendered thing. I think it applies just as well to men that if you're raised that you have these certain guidelines you need to fit into. And on some level, you know, I don't quite fit. Then you, there, there is something very freeing about seeing someone who's living life outside of these lines and is doing it happily and contentedly and successfully. And that you know, I think especially in those teenage years, maybe when you haven't seen as much, when you first start to get a glimmer that there is a life beyond your household, beyond this set neighborhood, that there are all, you know, in some ways, just that there are other options, even if you haven't seen them all, 
Um, I think for Rachel and for kind of whoever a younger person in that kind of mentoring relationship is, it is easier to follow a path when you know there's a path there. Mm -hmm. It's harder to be the one who carves something out that you don't even know exists. And obviously people do that still and have done it. But uh, I think it's, it simplifies things and is comforting to realize this is a path that, that can be followed. Um, And yeah, but for the older person, I, I think you're right. There is a, an, an element of, of performance and of, um, of of permission that that yes, this person wants this from me, and so I can be that. I mean, a lot of times it works the other way that instead maybe your parents or your friends are expecting something you're not, and you feel pushed to sort of fit into this other shape. And especially if that's the case, when you happen to meet somebody who wants you to fill out the space you want to occupy. I think can be a really, a really gratifying thing. Good for the soul. Well said. That was an awesome answer. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I wasn't about to follow that. I was like, yeah, <laughs> that was um, That was beautiful. Um, and right. that spirit comes through in the book so strongly. Um, Lee, I did have a, a very pointed question I wanted to ask you. I couldn't possibly get through this without. Um, there's so much in your book of kind of haunted world there are ghosts that are either literal or might as well be there are ufos there's witches there are all of these things and they sit so beautifully and naturally in the what we call the real world i guess um and there's no contradiction in that and it never feels like a supernatural book it just feels like part of reality Um, is that how you see the world yeah <laughs> Unfortunately, for good or bad, and you know what? I don't think I'm alone in this virtual room in that regard. But it, I think Marquez said that he didn't know what magical realism was. You know, it was his world. He was describing, you know, as a realist. Um, I like you was raised with UFOs and the occult. You know, you've written so beautifully about how you like cults. <laughs> oh, they're pretty, you know, everybody's so nice to you, et cetera. Um, and, you know, we've both written a lot about exorcisms. And Jane, you have your share of ghosts as well. And, um, you know, my ghosts are ghosts of contrition more than, you know, like somebody like Jasmine Ward writes about ghosts and the ghosts actually have outside lives outside the narrator. They actually are living in existence that, you know, that goes on my ghosts exist inside the mind more or less of, of my narrator. I don't think they have outside existence beside that. Um, but the rest of it, the cult, the UFOs, all that, it's just my life and my interest. Um, I've always been fascinated by the occult and um, by exorcisms, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. You know, I was raised in the day and age in the South where we honestly thought there were Satanists in the woods around our town sacrificing animals and god knows what else you know we were told they were out there and we were afraid of them the, uh, the, and then of course, the adults they, thought that too yeah yeah i mean there's a name for it now jimmy can you think of, what was the name of the, the yeah all right and um we honestly you know the adults taught us this that there were satanic sacrifices going on all around us and uh so how could i not you know be raised to write books you know that that are like that 
And, you know, the whole UFO thing is simply because, you know, it started in Pascagoula when I was a kid and never stopped. Um, I've never not written about UFOs. <laughs> I don't think I ever will. Very cool. Yeah, I remember growing up, um, even this was even in the early 90s, you know, my Sunday school teacher telling me, like, be very careful when you go to the mall because there are demons hiding in the mall, especially in the arcade. So if you go there, you're going to be very susceptible to... <laughs> I mean, that is where the demons would want to go, surely. I think so. I mean, they're not stupid. <laughs> a bunch of kids playing video games. Yeah, anyway. For the demons. No, that's oh, awesome. That's a, that's a George Saunders story right there. The mall demons. Mall rat demons. <laughs> mall yeah. rat ghosts. The demons are yeah. playing video... Or people like video games. Anyway. I but I know. do wonder... I'm sorry. I just wanted to cut in that it hadn't occurred to me before that... I mean, I wonder how much of a of a thread that is between writers of of early memories of being interested in what else was it what in in yeah in the occult in the supernatural. I think I had a big black hardback book called Mysteries of the Unexplained that went through like UFOs and Loch Ness and Bigfoot and um, spontaneous human combustion and. <laughs> And yeah, like in elementary school, it was just all I wanted to read about. And I, I do feel like there is something there for the writerly mind of sort of what's beyond what we can see that's surely bound to be interesting. I mean, I still feel like, really, are we sure there's no such thing as spontaneous human combustion? Have we definitely disproven that? We haven't, have we? I don't think so. I don't, the books seem to imply that we had, but I, I mean, if I get to pick, that's kind of how I'd like to go. Just sitting there one day and then just whoosh. Like a bat. I would dust. I still worry about that happening. So. <laughs> you don't I would be happy if science proved that wrong. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, well, I do think, I mean, I had a similar thing just of growing up being obsessed with UFOs, with looking out for things with like, I think a lot of it for me was the church stuff. Like um, you were told there is a haunted and alive world um, and you're also in nature and you're being able to be around all of these things. I do think that both um, gives you a sort of questioning, you know, for beyond what, for what else is out there, but it also gives you an openness to life that I hope is um, part of being a writer. Also, I'm not supposed to talk this much. I'm the moderator. So You're not talking out. that much. There's yeah. only three of us, man. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I was like five. Five. yeah. Um, Hurricane Ida dwindled our numbers pretty. Um, uh, sorry, you could show up because of power and things like that. Electricity. Uh, let me see. Did you guys grow up reading a lot of Southern writers? Is that something that happened? I mean, I've read more, trying to th- I mean, surely not until, um, well, okay. I was trying to think of what, what can I think of before the age of 12? Catherine Tucker Wyndham, 13 Alabama Ghosts. Um, that's about the only, then by school, I think by middle school and high school, then you started to get into um, Faulkner, Eudora Welty, Flannery O'Connor. Um, I think we did maybe um, Zora Neale Hurston in middle school. But not that much. I mean, I don't I don't think of having realized there really was a school of Southern writing of literature until until college, um, much like I was unaware that people ever taught the civil rights movement until college. Um, I just there were 
feel like we we left some things out. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. What, what about you, Lee? Yeah, I don't, I did not have a strong sense of that growing up of Southern writers. No, I did not at all. And I really disliked my hometown growing up and all I wanted to do was escape it. And so the last thing I wanted to read was about the South. I was interested in the world. And um, so I didn't start reading Southern literature probably until I was in college, maybe even graduate school, you know, because people started, you know, you realize that there are a lot of people who take a lot of pride in this genre in the South. And so I have read it and I do enjoy it now, but I did not read it growing up. And I certainly wasn't introduced to it in school. I think the only two books I ever read in school that were assigned were Rebecca, which blew my mind. I loved it and still do. And, and The Old Man in the Sea. And that was it. You know, I, I, anything else I read came off the classic rat in the mall bookstore, which I figured out as a kid. That's where you go. That's where you found good books. But I That's didn't where the something. demons are. <laughs> That's right. They didn't realize the demons are in the bookstore. <laughs> so now Southern literature meant nothing to me growing up. I'm very fond of it now, but you know, it's, I find that the people I originally liked as a young person are not the people I read now in Southern literature. I still read a lot of Southern literature, but um, I've left a lot of Southern writers behind as well, which is sad, but that's just the way reading is in life, I think. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, that's great. I would mean, now that just like got me thinking now, who did I leave behind? And now I feel bad for them. But uh, <laughs> no, that's a, a thing. Um, if you had to like pick like one sort of Southern novel, like your personal canon Southern novel, or at least just one that you wish people read more often. I know I'm putting it on the spot now, but one like that, that you just love, that you feel is unjustly ignored or is just one that you can't live without. I feel like you're, you're supposed to prep us in advance for a question like that. Well, I just, <laughs> but, I, but I can't come up with a... <laughs> no, I just suck at those. I know I'm always like, that is the one question. When somebody says, name a book, it's suddenly like, I'm not sure I've read any. I don't, I can't remember any book I've ever read by any author at, at all. Um, yeah. But no, I'm, I'm teasing. I can, I, I, I have one or two. Do you have one ready, Lee? I've got two that are my go-to Southern. I mean, Robert Penn Warren's All the King's Men and Love that. quite the story of Finery O'Connor. Those are my two favorite Southern books, I think. Uh, the Optimist Daughter by Eudora Welty for me. Love it. In terms of one that I think is sort of underrated, I just, I never hear anybody talking about it. It's very slim. I think it's just beautifully written and simple and uh, and pure. Uh, Sing and Berry Sing by Jesmyn Ward. Not underrated. Everybody's talks about how brilliant it is, but man, it's really brilliant. Um, it, it, it just blew me away and, and still yeah. just floats through my head periodically. Yeah, she really brought to life a world that has been ignored by modern fiction, I think, mm-hmm. in that book. Yeah, it's phenomenal. I mean, that's that's one that has achieved this classic status and very well deserves it. Did you guys also read, as an aside, her essay on COVID? Yes, about about her husband's death. Yes, and it wasn't Vogue, was it? That's not right. Uh, but yeah, no, it that was maybe as great an essay as I read last year. It was phenomenal. Absolutely. Yeah, she's something else. For If I was going to have to pick one, I would say Music of the Swamp by Lewis Norton. 
just a book that I have always loved and will always love. And, and first, you know, it still surprises me to this day. Go ahead. I wish I had been able to meet him before he passed away. I met him one time at Bottle Tree Bakery and I was, I got him to sign my books and I was so nervous as I always am when I meet somebody I respect, like I couldn't talk. I like, I think I knocked my glasses off my face. It was horrible, but he was very gentle and very kind. Didn't care that I interrupted his breakfast. You know, like, I used to write him fan letters when I was young. He's like the only person I've written a fan letter to maybe. I loved his short story, especially his Welcome to the Arrow Catcher Fair, his first book, his first book of stories. And he used to write me back letters, type, and I remember all the O's were hollowed out in his letters, so you could hold them up, and they were like a colander. <laughs> That's fantastic. That is awesome. It was, uh, it was nice that he wrote me back. You know what's super weird about that book? Again, we're, we're getting towards the end of things, but... um. <laughs> I used there was a time in my life when I but things sort of went south and I had to move back in with my parents. It was like the first time I moved back to the south. And uh I guess I was like 23, 24 maybe and um I was trying to get out of debt, working a bunch of jobs, but I started watching movies seriously for the first time in my life and I was like using Roger Ebert's great movies book as like a guide because I didn't know anything about movies and I would just like watch watch one every day. And then I started emailing Roger Ebert, who was really nice, and he would always email me back. And then after a while, I was like, can I send you a book that I really like? <laughs> and he said, sure, and gave me a P.O. box. And I sent him a copy of Music of the Swamp. Uh, I don't know if you ever read it, but it, <laughs> I was like, I'm always trying to evangelize these little books as much as I can. But anyway. Trudy was thrilled that someone wanted to send them a book that they didn't write. I would think yeah. that, might, that might make it stand out. <laughs> Probably. I don't know. You know, these things, they become like talismans for you, these, these books that you love. Um, okay, we should uh, close it out here. Does any, do you guys have anything else you want to talk about? Or I mean, it's hard not to go back to the supernatural, and I feel like there could be some X-Files potential discussions, but no, not, real, not really. <laughs> yeah, we should actually revamp the X-Files and just do it in the South. That would be... <laughs> Ooh, awesome idea. Yeah. <laughs> This was so- <laughs> I'm trying to think of it. I can't do a southern accent. I don't even have a southern accent. <laughs> such, a, such a fraud. <laughs> I have to say, thank you all so much again for being on this panel. This was an absolute pleasure to talk to you all. Um, and, and an absolute pleasure to read your books as well. Just tremendous stuff. And I, I feel very grateful to getting to talk to y'all. I cannot thank y'all enough. And thanks for uh, viewers for uh, tuning in. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's literary lawn party.